0: Chapters five and six of Tinting Tonight by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five to Kent La Lake. We had washed at dawn in the cold lake. The rain had turned to snow in the night, and the mountains were covered with a fresh white coating. And then, at last, we were off, the wagons first, although we were soon to pass them we had lifted the boats out of the water and put them lovingly in their straw again and mike and george formed the crew the guides were ready with facetious comments put up a sail they called never give up the ship was another favorite The head, who has a secret conviction that he should have had his voice trained, warbled joyously, "'I'll stick to the ships, lads, you save your lives, I've got no one to love me, you've children and wives.'" And so, still in the cool of the morning, our long procession mounted the rise, which some great glacier deposited ages ago at the foot of what is now Bowman Lake. We turned longing eyes back as we left the lake to its winter ice and quiet, for never again probably will it be ours. We have given its secret to the world. At two o'clock we found a ranger's cabin and rode into its enclosure for luncheon. Breakfast had been early, and we were very hungry. We had gone long miles through the thick and silent forest, and now we wanted food. We wanted food more than we wanted anything else in the world. We sat in a circle on the ground and talked about food. And at last the chuck-wagon drove in. It had had a long, slow trip. We stood up and gave a hungry cheer, and then—Bill was gone! Some miles back he had halted the wagon, got out, taken his bed on his back, and started toward civilization afoot. We stared blankly at the teamster well we said what did he say all he said to me was so long said the teamster and that was all there was to it so there we were in the wilderness far far from a cook the hub of our universe had departed or to make the figure modern we had blown out a tire and we had no spare one i made my declaration of independence at once I could cook, but I would not cook for that outfit. There were too many. They were too hungry. Besides, I had come on a pleasure trip, and the idea of cooking for fifteen men and thirty-one horses was too much for me. I made some cocoa and grumbled while I made it. We lunched out of tins and in savage silence. When we spoke, it was to impose horrible punishments on the defaulting cook we hoped he would enjoy his long walk back to civilization without food food answered one of the boys he's got plenty cached in that bed of his all right what you should have done he said to the teamster was to take his bed from him and let him starve in silence we finished our luncheon in silence mounted our horses in black and hopeless silence we rode on north farther and farther from cooks and hotels and table d'hôte. we rode for an hour two hours and at last sitting in a cleared spot we saw a man beside the trail he was the first man we had seen in days he was sitting there quite idly probably that man today thinks that he took himself there on his own feet of his own volition we know better he was directed there for our happiness it was a direct act of providence for we rode up to him and said, Do you know of any place where we can find a cook? And this man, who had dropped from heaven, replied, I am a cook. So we put him on our extra saddle-horse and took him with us. He cooked for us with might and main, day and night, until the trip was over. And if you don't believe this story, write to Norman Lee, Kintla, Montana, and ask him if it is true. What is more, Norman Lee could cook. He could cook on his knees, bending over and backward. He had been in Cuba, in the Philippines, in the Boxer Rebellion in China, and was now a trapper. Is now a trapper, for, as I write this, Norman Lee is trapping Martin and Lynx on the upper left-hand corner of Montana, in one of the empty spaces of the world. We were very happy. We caracoled, whatever that may be we sang and whistled and we rode how we rode we rode and 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 And at last just when the end of endurance had come we reached our night camp here and there upon the west side of glacier park are curious sharply defined treeless places surrounded by a border of forest on round prairie that night we pitched our tents and slept the sleep of the weary our heads pillowed on war-bags in which the heel of a slipper the edge of a razor-case a bottle of sunburn lotion and the tooth-end of a comb made sleeping an adventure it was cold it was always cold at night but in the morning we wakened to brilliant sunlight to the new cook's breakfast and to another day in the saddle we were roused at dawn by a shrill yell. Startled, every one leaped to the opening of his tent and stared out. It proved, however, not to be a mountain lion, and was indeed nothing more than one of the packers struggling to get into a wet pair of socks and giving vent to his irritation in a wild fury of wrath. As Pete and Bill Shea and Tom Farmer threw the diamond hitch over the packs that morning, They explained to me that all camp cooks are of two kinds—the good cooks, who are evil of disposition, and the tin can cooks, who only need a can-opener to be happy. But I lived to be able to refute that. Norman Lee was a cook, and he was also amiable. But that morning, in spite of the bright sunlight, started ill. For seven horses were missing, and before they were rounded up, The guide had ridden a good forty miles of forest and trail, but at last the wanderers were brought in, and we were ready to pack. On a pack horse there are two sets of rope. There is a sling rope, twenty or twenty-five feet long, and a lash rope, which should be thirty-five feet long. The sling rope holds the side pack. The top pack is held by the lash rope and the diamond hitch. When a cow-puncher on a bronco yells for a diamond, he does not refer to a jewel. He means a lash-rope. When the diamond is finally thrown, the packer puts his foot against the horse's face and pulls. The packer pulls, and the horse grunts. If the packer pulls a shade too much, the horse bucks, and there is an exciting time in which everybody clears and the horse has the field every one, that is, but Joe, whose duty it was to be on the spot in dangerous moments. Generally, however, by the time he got his camera set up and everything ready, the bucker was feeding placidly, and the excitement was over. We rather stole away from Round Prairie that morning. A settler had taken advantage of a clearing some miles away to sow a little grain. When our seven truants were found that brilliant morning. They had eaten up practically the grain field and were lying gorged in the centre of it. So we folded our tents like the Arabs and as silently stole away. This has to be used in every camping story, and this seems to be a good place for it. We had come out onto the foothills again on our way to Kintla Lake. Again we were near the flathead, and beyond it lay the blue and purple of the Kotenay Hills. The Kootenays on the left, the Rockies on the right, we were traveling north in a great flat basin. The meadowlands were full of flowers. There was rather less Indian paintbrush than on the east side of the park. We were too low for much bear grass. But there were masses everywhere of June roses, true forget me nots, and larkspur. And everywhere in the burnt areas was the fireweed, that phoenix plant that springs up from the ashes of dead trees. There were indeed trees, flowers, birds, fish, everything but fresh meat. We had had no fresh meat since the first day out, and now my soul revolted at the sight of bacon, loathed all ham with a deadly loathing. I had eaten canned salmon until I never wanted to see it again, and our provisions were getting low. Just to the north, where we intended to camp, was Starvation Ridge. It seemed to be an ominous name. Norman Lee knew a man somewhere within a radius of one hundred miles—they have no idea of distance here—who would kill a forty-pound calf if we would send him word but it seemed rather too much veal we passed it up on and on a hot day a beautiful trail but no water no little rivulets crossing the path no icy lakes no rolling cataracts from the mountains we were tanned a blackish purple we were saddle sore one of the guides had a bottle of liniment for saddle gall and suggested rubbing it on the saddle packs slipped and were tightened the mountain panorama unrolled slowly to our right, and all day long the boatmen struggled with the most serious problem yet, for the wagon trail was now hardly good enough for horses. Where the trail turned off toward the mountains and Kintla Lake we met a solitary horseman. He had ridden sixty miles down and sixty miles back to get his mail. There is a sort of RFD in this corner of the world but it is not what i should call inactive operation it was then august and there had been just two mails since the previous christmas aside from the geological survey very few people except an occasional trapper have ever seen kintla lake it lies like bowman lake in a recess in the mountains we took some photographs of kintla peak taking our boats to the upper end of the lake for the work they are, so far as I can discover, the only photographs ever taken of this great mountain, which towers, like rainbow, a mile or so above the lake. Across from Kentla there is a magnificent range of peaks, without any name whatever. The imagination of the geological survey seemed to die after Starvation Ridge. At least they stopped there. Kentla is a curious lemon-yellow color a great flat wall tapering to a point and frequently hidden under a cap of clouds but kintla lake is a disappointment to the fishermen. with the exception of one of the guides who caught a four pound bull trout there repeated whippings of the lake with the united rods and energies of the entire party failed to bring a single rise no fish leaped of an evening none lay in the shallows along the bank it appeared to be a dead lake. I have a strong suspicion that the guide took away Kentla's only fish and left it without hope of posterity. We rested at Kentla for a strenuous time was before us, rested and fasted, for supplies were now very low. Starvation Ridge loomed over us, and starvation stared us in the face. We had counted on trout, and there were no trout that night we supped off our last potatoes and off cakes made of canned salmon browned in butter breakfast would have to be a repetition minus the potatoes we were just a little low in our minds the last thing i saw that night was the cook's shadowy figure as he crouched working over his campfire and we awakened in the morning to catastrophe In spite of the fact that we had starved our horses the day before in order to keep them grazing near camp that night, they had wandered. Eleven were missing, and eleven remained missing. Up the mountain slopes and through the woods the Wranglers rode like madmen, only to come in on dejected horses with failure written large all over them. One half of the saddlers were gone. My angel had taken wings and flown away. We sat dejectedly on the bank, and fished those dead waters. We wrangled among ourselves. Around us was the forest, thick and close, save for the tiny clearing, perhaps forty feet by forty feet. There was no open space, no place to walk, nothing to do but sit and wait. At last, some of us in the saddle and some afoot, we started. It looked as though the walkers might have a long hike but some time about midday, there was a sound of wild cheering behind us, and the wranglers rode up with the truants. They had been far up on the mountainside. It is curious how certain comparatively unimportant things stand out about such a trip as this. Of Kintla itself I have no very vivid memories, but standing out very sharply is that figure of the cook crouched over his dying fire, with the black forest all about him. There is a picture, too, of a wild deer that came down to the edge of the lake to drink as we sat in the first boat that had ever been on Kentla Lake, whipping a quiet pool. And there is a clear memory of the assistant cook, the college boy, who was taking his vacation in the wilds, whistling the Dvorak humoresque as he dried the dishes on a piece of clean sacking. End of chapter five. Chapter six. Running the rapids of the Flathead. It was now approaching time for Bob's great idea to materialize. For this, and to this end, had he brought the boats on their strange land journey. Such a journey as, I fancy, very few boats have ever had before. The project was, as I have said, to run the unknown reaches of the North Fork of the Flathead from the Canadian border to the town of Columbia Falls. The idea is this, Bob had said, it's never been done before, do you see? It makes the trip unusual, and all that. Makes it unusually risky, I had observed. Well, there's a risk in pretty nearly everything, he had replied blithely. There's a risk in crossing a city street, for that matter riding these horses is a risk if you come to that and anyhow it would make a good story so that is why i did it and this is the story we were headed now for the flathead just south of the canadian line to reach the river it was necessary to take the boats through a burnt forest without a trail of any sort they leaped and plunged as the wagon scrambled jerked careened stuck detoured and finally got through. There were miles of such going, heart-breaking miles, and at the end we paused at the top of a sixty-foot bluff and looked down at the river. Now, I like water in a tub or drinking glass or under a bridge. I am very keen about it. But I like still water—quiet, well-behaved, stay-at-home water the north fork of the flathead river is a riotous debauched and highly erratic stream it staggers in a series of wild zigzags for a hundred miles of waterway from the canadian border to columbia falls our destination and that hundred miles of whirlpools jagged rocks and swift and deadly canyons we were to travel i turned around and looked at the family it was my ambition that had brought them to this we might never again meet as a whole we were sure to get to columbia falls but not at all sure to get there in the boats i looked at the boats they were i believe stout river boats but they were small undeniably they were very small the river appeared to be going about ninety miles an hour there was one hope however Perhaps they could not get the boats down over the bluff. It seemed a foolhardy thing even to try. I suggested this to Bob, but he replied, rather tartly, that he had not brought those boats at the risk of his life through all those miles of wilderness to have me fail him now. He painted the joys of the trip. He expressed so strong a belief in them that he said that he himself would ride with the outfit thus permitting most of the family in the boats that first day. He said the river was full of trout. I expressed a strong doubt that any trout could live in that stream and hold their own. I felt that they had all been washed down years ago. And again I looked at the family. Because I knew what would happen, the family would insist on going along. It was not going to let mother take this risk alone— It was going to drown with her if necessary. The family jaws were set. They were going. The entire outfit lowered the wagon by roping it down. There was one delicious moment when I thought boats and all were going over the edge, but the ropers held. Nothing had happened. They put the boats in the water. I had one last rather pitiful thought as I took my seat in the stern of one of them. "'This is my birthday,' I said wistfully. "'It's rather a queer way to spend a birthday, I think.' But this was met with stern silence. I was to have my story, whether I wanted it or not. Yet once in the river the excitement got me. I had run brief spells of rapids before. There had been a gasp or two, and it was over. But this was to be a prolonged four days' gasp, with intervals only to sleep at night. Fortunately for all of us, it began rather quietly. The current was swift, so that, once out into the stream, we shot ahead as if we had been fired out of a gun. But for all that, the upper reaches were comparatively free of great rocks. Friendly little sandy shoals beckoned to us, The water was shallow, but even then I noticed what afterward I found was to be a delusion of the entire trip. This was the impression of riding downhill. I do not remember now how much the flathead falls per mile. I have an impression that it is ninety feet, but as that would mean a drop of nine thousand feet or almost two miles during the trip, I must be wrong somewhere. It was sixteen feet, perhaps. But hour after hour, on the straight stretches, there was that sensation, on looking ahead, of staring down a toboggan slide. It never grew less. And always I had the impression that just beyond that glassy slope the roaring meant uncharted falls and destruction. It never did. The outfit, following along the trail, was to meet us at night and have camp ready when we appeared—if we appeared. Only a few of us could use the boats. George Locke in one, Mike Shannon in the other, could carry two passengers each. For the sake of my story, I was to take the entire trip. The others were to alternate. I do not know, but I am very confident that no other woman has ever taken this trip. I am fairly confident that no other men have ever taken it. We could find no one who had heard of it being taken. All that we knew was that it was the north fork of the Flathead River, and that if we stayed afloat long enough we would come out at Columbia Falls. The boatmen knew the lower part of the river, but not the upper two-thirds of it. Now that it is over, I would not give up my memory of that long run for anything. It was one of the most unique experiences in a not uneventful career. It was beautiful always, terrible occasionally. There were dozens of places each day where the boatmen stood up, staring ahead for the channel while the boats dodged wildly ahead. But always these skillful pilots of ours found a way through, AND SO FAST DID WE GO THAT THE WORST PLACES WERE ALWAYS BEHIND US BEFORE WE HAD TIME TO BE REALLY TERRIFIED. THE FLATHEAD RIVER IN THESE UPPER REACHES IS FAIRLY ALIVE WITH TROUT. ON THE SECOND DAY, I THINK IT WAS, I LANDED A BULL TROUT THAT WEIGHED NINE POUNDS AND GOT IT WITH A SIX-OUNCE ROD. I'M VERY PROUD OF THAT. I HAVE ELEVEN DIFFERENT PICTURES OF MYSELF HOLDING THE FISH UP. THERE WERE TROUT EVERYWHERE. The difficulty was to stop the boat long enough to get them. In fact, we did not stop, save in an occasional eddy in the midst of the torrent. We whipped the stream as we flew along. Under great boulders, where the water seethed and roared, under deep cliffs where it flew like a mill-race, there were always fish. It was frightful work for the boatmen. It required skill every moment. There was not a second in the day when they could relax. Only men trained to river rapids could have done it, and few even of these. To the eternal credit of George and Mike we got through. It was nothing else. On the evening of the first day, in the dusk which made the river doubly treacherous, we saw our camp-fire far ahead. With the going down of the sun the river had grown cold. We were wet with spray, cramped from sitting still and holding on, but friendly hands drew our boats to shore and helped us out. Chapter six.